welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, it's John Dudley back for another Knock On Podcast, and I got one of the archery legends, Randy Ulmer, with me. Thanks, buddy, for coming on. Hopefully the connection holds up. <laughs> Thanks for having me, John. Well, are you uh, done for the year hunting, or are you still getting after anything? I guess you guys got javelinas or something you could chase around right now. No, yeah, we're pretty much done, you know, unless we go turkey hunting in the spring, but uh, we're done with our fall hunts. Oh, yeah. Well, I wanted to dive into a few different topics. One, I haven't touched base with you in a while. I was curious what your hunting setup was right now. Um, did you end up redoing a new bow? Did you do, go with a new bow this year, or are you still using Old Faithful? Yeah, I just uh, I just, uh, I just, got the new bow, and uh, I haven't had time to set it up. Uh, I always like to keep uh the bow from last year and hunt all the way through the fall even though the the new bows come out in october i usually don't change over till the spring um but yeah i, I was real happy uh with the the uh the success that uh that i had with the old bow how did you have the old one set up what, did you stick with your injections or did you change up arrows oh, at yeah. all <laughs> no no i love the injection arrow i mean it's uh I've gone from the AC injection arrow to the all carbon injection arrow. Uh, it seems to hold up just a little bit better uh, with the, with abuse, and uh, and they're just about uh, the same accuracy when I shoot them through the shooting machine. But the, yeah, I haven't ever found a, an arrow better for hunting than the injection arrow. It's uh, it's real small diameter. It's very very straight and very consistent within a dozen arrows up. Almost all of them will group out of the shooting machine, um, and I've uh, just had such good luck with it. And they're stiff, and they penetrate well, and, and I like the fact that they're, uh, relatively speaking, have a little bit more mass weight. I I, uh, I like to shoot a heavier arrow for hunting. What, what type of weight do you normally stick with? I'm shooting about 500 grains right now, which seems really heavy when you talk to most people, but... Um, I found that there's several reasons why I do that. I found that um, a heavy arrow, uh, one of the, the most important things, as you well know, I add a lot of weight to the front of my arrow, and, and a heavy arrow just sends, tends to group better, especially at long ranges, uh, especially a heavy, very small diameter arrow uh, bucks the wind incredibly well, penetrates very well. and. Um, and one of the things that uh, I enjoy hunting the most, as you know, is mule deer. And, and of the mule deer that I've missed over the last 15 or 20 years, most of, miss, most of them I missed because they jumped the string. And uh, one of the things that shooting a heavy arrow does for you is it really quiets down the bow. And since we're always using, I'm always using a, a, a range finder, I, I really don't need that super, super fast speed. And I found that shooting a little bit slower when I say slower, I'm talking about, you know, maybe 260 feet per second. Um, I just shoot a lot more accurately, and, and my setup seems to be more forgiving for me at that speed. What type of what type of distance can you clear shooting at 260? 
Um, you mean with my with my sight window? Right. Right. Yep. Um, you know, I I can put I can shoot out to 120 yards. Uh, you know, I I practice out to 120 yards. So, and that's about it. Uh, but you know, I, I don't. I mean, I don't shoot at anything over 60. You know, unless it's a backup shot or something like that. But uh, I like to practice long distance. But that really excessive range doesn't uh, doesn't really. I don't need it. Yeah. No. I was just curious at that speed. Um, your peep height must be a little bit higher relatively than mine then, I guess. Cause I always, I yeah, I anchor pretty low and that's probably, that's probably it. What is your peep height? Do you know, are you six and a half now or something like that? I get, I would guess, or. John, I'm sorry. I, we had a little disruption there. What, what did you ask? I was asking what your peep height is. Oh, you know, I really couldn't tell you. I'd have to go out and measure it. <laughs> I, just, I just put it where it needs to be. You know, obviously, on different axle-to-axle length bows, the peep height's different, so I've never really uh, never really had a specific measurement. Yep. Well, you don't shoot light at Knox, do you? No, I don't. Uh, um, I just never really saw the purpose of it. Uh, I... I um, I oftentimes don't see my arrow that much in flight, and I and, and I'm afraid if I started seeing my arrow in flight, I'd start peeking. I don't know, <laughs> yeah. but no, I don't. Uh, I, I don't use lighted knots. Although you know, there's been an occasion where uh, my hunting partners or I have have uh, been trying to track deer in the dark, and it sure would be nice, especially in the big open hillsides of the West, to have a lighted knot that you can just glass across and, and see it. You know what I'm saying? Oh but yeah. But no, I've never done it. No, I'm a big. I just. I. Go ahead. I was going to say I'm a big fan of lighted knocks. I mean, there's several purposes. One, certainly the purpose of being able to, you know, find your arrow after dark, or even, you know, if you're like you said in those big open countries. Um, I was actually hog hunting down in Oklahoma a month ago, and the the underbrush was it was just so dense and tall that you couldn't. You couldn't really track well in it. It was just really, really difficult. So I ended up just waiting until it got dark and just got up on a hillside and just pretty much pinpointed exactly where my arrow was. I knew it was still in the hog. And I was able to to just make tracking super easy. And, you know, you're right. There's certainly been times, you know, on on hunts where you're in sage and stuff like that, a mule deer on its side sometimes just really tough to see and it it makes it so convenient for recovery oh yeah i've just never got into it and you know maybe i i I should explore it a little bit well the reason i don't shoot injections funny enough is because i really like lighted knocks and i know there's a ton of benefits to the injection but what i found was with lighted knocks that are a little bit longer and kind of have components to them they're not as rigid as the knock that goes directly in the back of that injection and i just think that if you have a a knock that's that's not as tight and doesn't have the proper you know fit and stiffness the accuracy you end up losing accuracy just from that component and for me anyway it started to outweigh 
the difference that that small diameter was making when it when it comes to groups well and i didn't i was careful when you asked me to in the first place i didn't want to disparage lighted knocks or lighted knock companies but to be honest with you the real reason i don't use them is just what you just said <laughs> since, you, <laughs> since you opened up that can of worms um they just don't uh in the ones that i've looked at and i haven't looked at all brands so i'm not trying to disparage any particular brand but people have sent me lighted knocks and, and everyone that i've looked at I, I didn't even try them because i knew that there was going to be some accuracy issues with them just because of the either the lack of concentricity or the uh, stacking of tolerances because of the componentry that they have. Right. And uh, I just didn't need that variable. I didn't feel that the advantages outweighed the potential disadvantages. And as just like you, we're a couple of accuracy freaks. <laughs> and uh, the most important thing to me is, is accuracy, and I'm not going to do anything that would compromise that. And besides that, most of the time, I mean, not that, that I'm – anybody special most of the time you know I'm, I'm chasing one deer or say one elk and i really try to get close and make a really good shot so i haven't had uh many instances over the last out that's in the recent years you know it used to be that i wasn't as careful um but i don't have that many situations where i i uh have a, a big tracking job now obviously i i miss just like anybody else and and, uh, you know, all wound animals just like anybody else. I've gotten to the point where I would rather not shoot and take any sort of chance. So when I shoot, I, I mostly shoot very, very, uh, what I'll call uh, high, high, high percentage shots. And so I haven't had the issues that a lighted knock would help me enough for it. And again, I'm uh, being an accuracy uh, a person that, where accuracy is paramount mount. I just didn't want to take the risk. So you hit the nail on the head right there. <laughs> yeah, I've never really talked about that before, but that is the reason why um, I don't shoot the micro diameter shafts. I know that they're, originally it was because you didn't have as much option on broadheads, but um, if I, you know, I think there's a little bit more options on broadheads. I'd heard they might be phasing out the deep six, but. Um, so you might want to bulk up on your, on your arrows, but beyond that, yeah, <laughs> I, I just, uh, you know, the, the, the six is a, is a specialty arrow. You, you spend most of your time. I know you hunt a lot out West, but you spend most of your time hunting whitetail. And when you're out West hunting, wind is a huge factor. Oh, yeah. Um, and the reason that I shoot the arrow I do is almost completely because of the wind, you know, you, you look at what you guys shoot in Vita, what we do in Vita, and you, know, you shoot a heavy, small diameter, a heavily fronted, a heavily weight front of front of center uh, arrow, and and you know the same thing holds true with the hunting Going to shoot better and group better, and uh, and and it makes my bow quiet. So that that that's why I do it. But with you, you know, and, and penetration is not an issue. You have such a long draw length. And, and at least you to before you had your issue, you used to shoot quite a bit of, of poundage. So, you know, you were going to zip through any white tone, no matter what your uh, diameter was. With me, shoot elk, I, I hunt elk every year. Uh, penetration is very, very important. And you just get a little bit better penetration with that thin, small diameter shaft uh, that's really heavy. Well, Randy, what um, are you still shooting the Ulmer Edge then on the front? 
You know, I am. Uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, you know, when uh, my brother had the complications with uh, with making that head, uh, and they stopped production, um, I uh, I had quite a few, and I've actually recently um, gone and uh, and bought all the ones I could find off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I I just love that head. And, and again, it goes back to the accuracy that that you know I've shot just about every head there is through my shooting machine and. And that is the most accurate head I've ever shot, and and it functions very well. Um, I can honestly say I've never lost an animal I've shot with it. And my son, who's not really big, he shot three bull elk with it, you know, when he was what 14, 15, and 16, and uh, you know, all of them dropped inside. It's it's just a really good head. And so anyway, I've uh, I've bought all I could find on the internet, so uh, I'm stocked up for the next several years uh, to 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 continue using it. Have you tested the newest Rage, the hypodermic? No, not the, the, now, I tried the hypodermic, you know, I don't know if they've changed it when you say the newest one. I tried it when it first came out, it first came out like four years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, probably three, four years ago, yeah. Yeah, and and I tried it then, Uh, and not to disparage it, because I think it's a great head, Uh, however, what I have found, just in all my shooting through the shooting machine, you've probably done the same thing, John, I would imagine. Um, of course, you're kind of a shooting machine yourself. You probably don't need a shooting machine. But <laughs> what I've found, what I found with the shooting machine is that I can actually look at a head and get a pretty good idea of how well it's going to fly. The more surface um, um, structure there is, variations on surface, and one of the things about the hypodermic is uh, it's got a lot of uh, kind of swoops. Uh, if you look at the ferial, it's not straight. One thing I've found is is when you have a real straight ferial without a lot of um, structure, it'll fly better. And the hypodermic flies good. It flies good, but it doesn't fly nearly as well as the Elmer Edge. Just because the Elmer Edge is perfectly straight, doesn't have a lot of uh, doesn't have a lot of blade exposed. Yep. And that's one of the things that really makes a broadhead. And, and, and I, I can't say fly 40 because they fly really well, but not fly as, as well as other heads that don't have the structure. Yep. Ideally, you want a head that looks like a field point. I mean, that's what you want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I've had um, I've had really good luck with them. And, you know, there's several that are on the market that, that fly really well, but there's a lot of garbage out there. I mean, there's stuff that blatantly says that it's field point accurate, and that's really rare to even come by. You know, it's some of these claims are unfortunate for the consumers. Well, hopefully, I didn't lose them again. I feel like oh, I did. Okay, yeah, you just, you just. You just popped back on. You were gone for about 10 seconds. Jeez. Okay, what was the question, John? Sorry about that. I you asked me a question. I was just saying there's so many broadheads on the market right now that are just garbage compared to how they're advertised. And there's really there's really not that many that are designed with the purpose of really, really flying well. A lot of them just, they almost want to look cool in the package or look like they're going to do a lot of destruction, but they just don't fly with it worth a darn. 
Well, if you think about the average bow hunter, um, the average bow hunter isn't going to spend enough time, or, or maybe just doesn't have the, for once, doesn't have a shooting machine, doesn't really realize when he makes a shot and the arrow flies a little wild, um, he may assume that it's him. Uh, whereas you, you know, you're a tournament archer, and, and when you make a shot, you pretty much know that you made a good shot, and if the arrow flies wild, you're going, there's something wrong with that arrow or that broadhead. And he may not have that kind of confidence. And so I don't think it matters as much. Plus, you, you have to remember that the vast majority of the, the uh, bow hunting market is, is uh, structured toward whitetail hunters. And whitetail hunters really don't need that long-range accuracy. You know, if they can stay real accurate within 30 or 35, 40 yards, then they're happy. And, and most broadheads, if you have enough fletching behind them, are going to be you know, accurate enough to keep any kills on at that distance. Yep. Yep. Now I remember several years ago, you were, um, not really an advocate to a mechanical on elk. I was going on an elk hunt and you kind of talked me into taking a, taking a different type of head, but obviously you've changed that at least, at least with the design of probably more of the, you know, the type of deployment, like your Ulmer edge or rear deployment type mechanical versus the older style. Yeah, exactly. I had some really bad experiences, several bad experiences with uh, front-opening mechanical broadheads. And when we'd had that conversation, I hadn't started using a rear-deploying mechanical broadhead. Um, Once I started using that, uh, the precursor of the Rage broadhead uh, was what I used. It was called the Sniper, and when I first shot that, I loved it. And ever since that, and that's, that's been 12, 15 years ago, uh, I've used nothing but uh, rear-deploying mechanical broadheads, and I've just not had any issues at all. Uh, the only time I use fixed-blade broadheads is, you know, when they're required uh, for legal reasons in different states. But, yeah, rear-deploying broadheads, and there's only about three of them on the market uh, that uh, that I would even use on elk. Um, and... Uh, but I have had every elk I've killed uh, since so 15 years ago, approximately. It's been a rare deployment broadhead. Which three would it be? Well, the well, the, the uh, I counted the I counted the sniper, but it's no longer in production because it was bought by Rage, and Rage became the it was a precursor of the Rage. They bought the and then they started making the Rage broadhead. So it would be the Rage, but the, the uh, sniper, the Rage broadhead, and the Ulmer Edge. Now there may be others out there that I'm not aware of, uh, but I haven't seen any that I would use other than the Rage or the Ulmer Edge. Yeah. Well, hey, um, I don't know if I'm telling you a secret here, or if I'm letting a cat out of the bag too early, but they're rebirthing Rocky Mountain broadheads at the ATA show. I don't know oh. if if you know that. So. Oh no, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll see if they'll. Are they, are if, they just going to do like the the, the the which ones are they bringing out i can't re- well i probably shouldn't have said that much but i'll just i'll just say yeah they are going to rebirth well we'll it. find out you only got a week or two yeah exactly <laughs> i'll just be in suspense until i get to the joke <laughs> yeah i'm sure you'll be in suspense hey um <laughs> i wanted to get on a subject that's a little bit different than archery for a minute um this past year i did uh, well, I guess a year and a half ago, I got one of the Felt Outfitter e-bikes, 
and I hunted off that for the whole season and just fell in love with it. And, um, and so I, that just turned into kind of my fitness tool was, was my fat tire bike. And, you know, they take a lot of power to turn them if you're just pedaling them without the, without the assistance. But for this, this past year, I felt like I was in the best, like Western style hunting shape of my life by biking more than running. So, I mean, I know you're big into biking. So do you feel, I just feel like the continuous driving of the legs was just, um, almost more important for me for not, you know, physically getting winded when I'm, when I'm high stepping or driving up hills compared to just having lung capacity, you know, for, for running. Well, I feel like I lost them again. It's unfortunate. <laughs> Sorry, everyone listening. Oh, John, I, I, okay, I think I just your question. I missed most <laughs> of it, but um, I'll, I'll give you my experience with, with biking. Um, I was a long-distance runner for years and years and years, and uh, because of that, I ended up with you know wear and tear on my knees. And I started mountain biking, oh, geez, 10 or 15 years ago, and I wished I would have never been a runner and the reason is, is you can mountain bike. I think the reason you're in better shape, John, is when you run, it kind of tears you up a little bit, and you don't run as long. Um, if you're anything like me, I can get on a mountain bike and go for three hours, and the next day I, I'm not really sore. My joints are sore. But if I run for an hour, then I'm sore. So I actually spend more time on my mountain bike or, or my road bike, either one. And because of that, you can, and I used to run like every other day or every third day because of that. Right. And with the bike, I almost every day. So I think you're just getting more time in the saddle. You're getting more time, more exercise time, and your joints aren't sore, and the joints aren't the limiting factor. So you're pushing your muscles in your lungs, and that becomes a limiting factor. So you're actually doing yourself more good. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I coach our high school mountain bike team and, and, and we race, my son and I race and, and, uh, I just love it. I think it's the best fitness and it's fun. I mean, it's just pure fun. Uh, whereas running was fun when I was really young, but then it became more of a grind, but, uh, riding a bike's fun, especially a mountain bike on a trail. Oh yeah. Well, you're in the, you're in the perfect place for it too, out where you're at. No doubt about it. Oh, exactly. We, we, uh, you know, where we live here in Arizona is like mountain bike heaven. And then we spend our summers in Colorado and in the middle of mountain bike heaven up there. So we're, we're just surrounded by trails. And, and if you've got good trails, um, and you're just riding through the woods or riding through the desert, I mean, it's heavenly. I mean, I went out yesterday with, with my buddy and, uh, and we spent two hours just on these swoopy desert trails. And it's just, I mean, you just feel like a kid. You want, you feel like squealing. Because it's just so much fun. Well, the other day, um, Bill Winky and I went ice fishing, not to change the subject, but we were actually squealing. We were we were doing a little podcast from inside the ice shanty, and we were catching these two and two and a half pound crappies, and we were just squealing in there like little girls. These things were like flounders <laughs> come out of the ice. It was a ball, but we just enjoyed doing something that wasn't archery. You know what I mean? To just get our mind off this grind that me and you and bill you know it's always an article it's always a hunt it's always a fit something to film and or a podcast and it's nice to to get stress relief on in a different subject and 
you know, biking's the same for well, me. Well, you guys have you, you guys have made archery your living, uh, archery and and, uh, and bow hunting your living. And whenever you do that, uh, whenever you make anything your living, also and it, it tends to become work. Um, even though you enjoy it immensely, it becomes work because you have deadlines and that sort of thing. And I've never really done that nearly to the degree that you guys have. But even I can see how doing that over and over again, uh, it could get a little redundant. Uh, and and that's one of the reasons, well, that's the reasons I've exercised my whole life is I can t- take off and uh, exercise for an hour and get my mind off everything and clear my mind up for the rest of the day. But, yeah, I think uh, having an alternative to, to uh, what your passion is, is 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 a good thing for the brain. When you're riding as much as you are, are you still pretty strict on your diet? Or, I mean, because you're burning so much, you can, I mean, I know you have the option to be a little bit more lenient, but are you still, like, what's your what's your daily routine for intake? Well, this is getting annoying, people. Keep cutting out. Internet's not feeling it today, so... You back? Yeah, you just came back after about 15 <laughs> seconds gone. You were asking me about diet when you cut out. I assume that uh, that was pushing back. What do I do with my diet? Yeah, give us your daily routine. Well, um, I eat oatmeal. I eat oatmeal, cheese seeds, and uh, walnuts almost every morning for breakfast, sometimes eggs. But uh, I, I, I've i always eaten very, very healthy. Now, I say that, but... Uh, you know, everything, um, I eat uh, a little bit of everything, and, and I allow myself uh, quite a bit of cheating. Uh, it's just no fun if you don't. But um, And I try to eat quite a bit of protein. We usually eat elk once a day. That's kind of what we, our go-to protein is elk, some chicken. Uh, but try to eat a lot of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, again, though, I cheat quite a bit. Uh, my... my um, my biggest cheat is that I love Coke or Pepsi, so that's that's my biggest cheat. Uh, so I'm not very healthy, and I've always been thin. Uh, I don't know that I'm genetically thin, but I've always been thin just because I've been so active. So I've never really had to worry about weight. Uh, so I can pretty much eat everything I want, but I try to limit my cholesterol and, and, and saturated fats quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you? What do you eat when you're... When you're in the mountains, do you try to limit yourself down to what's easier to pack, or, or do you just? I mean, I know well, you got to. Go ahead. Uh, I think I lost you there, but uh, I'm in the mountains, um, John. For instance, I I had a bighorn tag in in uh, Colorado this year, and it was in some really really rough country. Had to hike way way in, and I did a lot of scouting up there, and. And usually what I look for on a trip like that is calorie-dense food, you know, as you're well aware of, uh, fat, you know, for every gram of fat, you get basically two and a half times as much uh, calories as you do for, for protein or carbohydrates. So I actually, when I'm in the mountains, eat quite a bit of fat, but usually healthy fat, usually vegetable-type fat. Um, I usually use Mountain House uh and I, I almost always just have plain oatmeal, and then I, I really gotten into chia seeds. They seem to give you a lot of energy and a lot of uh, dried fruits, nuts, uh, and then just a lot of uh, 
of uh, high calorie, high fat uh, foods, peanut butter, that sort of thing. Uh, again, just to keep the weight down. You know, if, it's, if I'm packing in, um, if I if I only want to pack in five pounds of food, uh, you know, if it's it's five pounds of food that's high in in fat, I can stay a whole lot longer than five pounds of food that's all carbohydrates and proteins. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm pretty much a high protein, high fat all the time. I I mix carbs in just when I feel like my brain's getting slow. That's really the only time that I that I bring carbs in. Sometimes if I'm feeling a little sluggish in the morning, I might have some type of whole grain toast. I do like I do like oatmeal or a whole grain oatmeal, but I feel like when I have for some reason when I eat a whole grain oatmeal, even like a steel road rolled oat, I just feel like I'm starving in an hour. I mean, I feel like I'm I literally feel like I have to eat way more. Like it's not doesn't sustain as good in my system. That's 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 very interesting, uh, and it may be just because that's what you're used to. But a lot of people have gone to well, basically what's the Atkins diet, a high fat, high high protein diet. The only the only concern I have with that is is I think people get on that diet, they have to be really careful to uh, to make sure they get fruits and vegetables. And I think people I've watched people on that diet. And a lot of them tend to neglect fruits and vegetables, which I think I think is really important. Um, so as long as you're eating fruits and vegetables and have a high protein, high fat diet, and, and as long as your fat's not all uh, saturated fat or animal fats, I, I think you're fine. Oh yeah, yeah. I feel so much better that way. I have a lot of I didn't, I intake a lot of vegetables, but I normally intake my vegetables either at lunch or mainly like in big volumes at night. But whenever I'm snacking. I'll always snack on something that's more of a fat than something that's, you know, a carb or a sugar. And I just, I don't know, I feel more, I feel like I'm never peaking and plummeting throughout the day. I just feel sustainable. Well... I lost you again. <laughs> this sucks. Oh, there, I, there you are. Yeah, there you yeah. Are. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, well, you know, science is uh, science is turning back around, and 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 and, it, and they keep kind of oscillating back and forth. But right now, dietary science is is heading more in the direction that that uh, the refined carbohydrates that we have now. Uh, are creating so many medical problems. Um, and again, it's the refined carbohydrates. It's not necessarily the carbohydrates you're getting from fruits and vegetables and, and things that have, you know, a lot of fiber. But there, some of the books I've read recently, the articles I read recently, are, are treating refined sugars almost like a poison to the body. So I think you're headed in the right direction. Uh, American society is, has become addicted to to refine carbohydrates, it's very very difficult to uh, to stop. It's it's uh, like I say, it's it's almost an addiction. But uh, if I had the discipline, I love sweets. If I had the discipline, I would eat a lot less. Fortunately, because I'm as active as I am, I, it doesn't affect me. At, at least uh, in my body mass index, it doesn't affect me as much as it does some people. But if you're relatively sedentary, uh, boy, it can kill you. Oh yeah, yeah. I can. Um, funny enough, I can. I can be on sugar for 
you know, or I can be on a diet that's fairly sugary and I can notice substantial weight gains in a week. And your taste, your whole taste bud changes too. Your, your whole taste, um, what your body's craving. I mean, I really think that carbs and sugars, I think they're more powerful than drugs because they can really, really get addictive fast for people. And, you know, it seems like Coke is one of the hardest things for people to, to get away from They're You know, people are so addicted to sodas and, you know, the, the whole thing is sugar. Well, I lost him again. Dang it. Oh, there you are. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a challenge. But uh yeah, sugar is uh it, it's definitely a hard thing for me. One thing that I found that there have been times where I've tried to have the discipline to go completely off sugar and I have. And one of the things that I found is when I'm off sugar, uh my craving for sugar within a week or so starts to go away. Uh if I'm used to having sugar every day, um I, will, I, I have cravings. I crave sugar. Uh, and, you know, I think you're right. But the thing about a drug is, you know, you can, you can stop a drug and you can stop it completely and you don't need it. The thing about eating and carbohydrates and sugars is you have to eat every day. You can't stop eating. And so the decision to, to, to uh, get off carbs is, is very, very difficult because you have to eat. So if I'm an if I have to eat, I might as well eat something, and, and I think you can just fall right back. Uh, even if you try to quit, you'll fall right back uh, into eating carbs and, and, and sweets because they're so readily available. And it's just, I mean, you go to a convenience store and try to find something healthy to eat, and it's nearly impossible. Yep. Um, and our society, our society, it's a, you know, the, the uh, fast food industries started uh, making a few healthy choices, but. It's difficult to eat well in America unless you're very disciplined. Yeah, yeah. There's no question. I've been pretty, um, I've been pretty happy for almost um, six months now. I've been, I've kind of got a little um, system that I've been using whenever I'm, especially when I travel. It works really well with just a a really super high end complex vitamin pack, and then I've got some uh, some really good um, buffalo jerky bars they're called tonka bars i don't know if you've ever seen them um i get mine yeah i've used them have you on it sells them um and they're they're really good and then i take um it's called the tpc packs it's a it's a total primal care pack and they have a morning pack and a night pack um just super complex vitamins and when i've been on even pack trips I feel like if I have two of those Tonka bars and then like one um, peanut butter Omega bar, I can be pretty sustainable if I have, you know, two or three bottles of water with me. I'm I'm pretty good that way. Yeah, that's good. Well, you know, one of the things that, that, that you have an advantage is you were an athlete when you were young, when you were younger. And I found that athletes tend to be more in tune with their body. And uh, how different things affect them they, because their body's kind of a fine-tuned machine. And if you've had that experience, uh, it's a lot easier to pay attention to your body. Uh, I found that a lot of people that were, were never athletes or never that attuned with their body don't tend to um, don't tend to 
analyze what they're eating and why they're feeling the way they're feeling. Uh, so it's good that you're talking about it to people that, 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 that may not have that, that ability uh, because it's amazing how your diet will affect everything from your mood to your performance um, to, your, to your weight. Um, you know, basically uh, what you put in your mouth is, is going to dictate uh, a whole lot about you. And, uh, and, and even though everybody preaches about it, very few people uh, tend to do something about it personally. So I'm glad you're talking to bow hunters about this stuff. Yeah, well, I think there's a movement right now. I think, I think bow hunting in general is making a huge movement to becoming more like athletes. And, and really, I think there's a lot of people trying to get in shape. I think um, there's way fewer people that are going on, especially Western hunts, that can't keep up with their guides. Well, most people can't totally keep up, but I think I think there's a big effort for people that are eating cleaner. I think there's a big movement towards organic foods and, you know, wild game meats and, you know, it's a cool it's a cool time to to be like you or I, someone that's already been kind of geeked out about it for years and it's just part of our lifestyle and it's what we live and then now it just seems like people are finally starting to get it and we're not we're not the extremist of the industry just trying to go out and be you know workout buffs or something hello there you are <laughs> it's, it's so funny <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, there is a, a little bit of a movement that way, and it, it's nice because you know out west we see uh, you see people that are just you know they they come from back east or they come from the south or or they just come from a town and they they you know they get out there and they they're they're on their dream hunt they draw an Arizona elk tag and they're just not able to get up and down the hills. I took a good friend of mine, well you know him very well, but I won't mention his name, but I took him elk hunting. He drawn an Arizona elk tag, and I took him out and and. Um, just climbing a 300 foot little, we were trying to run and get in front of some elk and just climbing up a little 300 foot, uh, uh, hill. We had to go over the top of it. The elk were going around the side of it. They did about killed him. And I, <laughs> I, I got to the top of the, I got him to the top of the hill and he looked like he was going to have a heart attack. And I thought, man, if I let him die, he's a popular guy. I thought if I let him die and he dies on my watch, there's going to be a lot of people that are very angry with me. <laughs> so I said, hey, this, this, this is just an elk. Let's not kill ourselves. <laughs> but I thought, you know, that's a shame that he had this dream tag, and it was a big bull we were chasing, and I thought, it's a shame because he's so overweight that, uh, and out of shape that, you know, he, he, he was unable to perform. Yeah. I mean, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that athletically challenging uh, what we're trying to do, but you know, he's a hundred pounds overweight, and it's just a shame. It's just a shame. So it's nice to see people uh, heading in the right direction. But you know, obesity in this country is just outrageous, and, and you really you, you you see it amongst bow hunters. You know, you go to a, an IBO shoot, and there's a lot of guys who are carrying a, a whole lot more weight than they ought to. And you know, these are guys; these are bow hunters. So, um, and it tends to be more difficult for people. It seems like in the because they eat so much fried food and whatnot so it'd be great if if people down there kind of got the got the memo yeah no doubt about it i um i always credited my success as an archer especially the any of the terrains that had better you know 
I guess, more severity to them. Those types of courses, field, you know, feet of field archery and some of the harder 3D courses that we shot, especially when we were in the mountains, um, I just always felt like I really separated myself from the majority of the pack, and I'm sure it was because of heart rate. Yeah, and, and just being in good condition, John, uh, you know, I remember the the best I ever did was always in August, uh, and I think one of the reasons is uh, we would shoot those IBO tournaments or the ASA tournaments, and these guys, a lot of the guys, especially if they're a little overweight or just not in good shape, they'd be dying towards the end of the towards the end of the day, and uh, I was still comfortable, you know, because of my conditioning, and and I won most of my big tournaments during that time. And I think a lot of it was not because I could shoot a bow better than anybody else. It was just because um, the guys I was shooting with were, were fatigued and not as in good a condition as I was in. Yeah, 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 I 100% agree. There was, there was, and you know, someone like, well, Dave Stepp shot so well then too because he was, you know, he was used to being out there and getting ready for elk season and, you know, running around in that altitude. So it just, it wasn't difficult for him to go and have a tournament on a ski mountain. Exactly. Exactly. And, and being young helps a lot, but you know, you don't have to be young to be in really good shape. Um, and you guys were both, you know, fairly athletic and that, that, that helps just an athletic background helps a lot just because, you know, again, you're in tune with your body and, and you tend to stay in a little better shape. Yep. Now, are you still shooting your um, your arrow rest pretty far back? Are you still going behind your tech riser right now? Uh, not on the particular bow I'm shooting right now, John. I do that depending on how the how the forgiveness is. You know the the um, uh, I uh, your torque tuning I torque more or less. Test. Right. Yeah, and and um, that's why I've done it for so many years and before torque test testing was really anybody knew anything about it and that's why I, I had my arrow rest back there is because some bows would torque test a lot better back there uh than than uh further forward uh just depending on the confirmation of the riser and the individual bow yep yeah because some of the newer ones now the risers are really stiff and with the with the zero torque roller guard um it's you know they they seem to tune a lot more down the pipe as a hunting bow. You know, we used to deal with that a lot with our target bows with, with the shoot through risers and the tech risers. They were always had a very good center shot tune. Um, but some of the hunting bows weren't that rigid in the, in the, in the riser. All right. seems like when I talk, I go, there you go. He's back. Ah, <laughs> uh, got me back. <laughs> yeah, the computer doesn't like to listen to you talk, John. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, no, I was just talking about how some of the hunting bows um, in the past, they weren't so focused on having you know minimal torque like the target bows that we had shot. But um, so the newer bows with more recent roller guard systems, or you're not having to go behind the tech riser anymore. No, I, I'm not. Actually, the last three bows that I've set up, I was able to to do real well in front of the riser. I still take my rest as far back as the riser usually. Uh, that tech 
that portion of the riser as I can, uh, which isn't really that far back. It's not much of an ogre. It's only, you know, half an inch or three quarters of an inch. But, um, you know, it, it, I seem to be able to do real well with the torque testing. So, uh, yeah, I've actually been putting it, you know, forward, which I'd rather do because obviously you don't like that big, long bar attached or, you know, you don't like to modify the bow just to make it fit the tune. Um, but, yeah, the bows now, the Hoyt bows, uh, I haven't been shooting any other bows, but the Hoyt bows really tend to be to, to be tending to tune very easily and very well um, where they're supposed to tune. Right. Yeah, I don't know if they've changed the geometry or if it's just that they've, you know, um, technology just keeps getting, as you know, I mean, when we first started, when, when I first started, uh, and you came in not very long after me uh, into the competitive arena, uh, you remember uh, how many bows you would have to go through to get one that would shoot well and how much <laughs> modification you would have to do to that bow <laughs> and, and, and how you would have to kind of, work on it during the tournament just to keep it going back when we were trying to shoot really fast. And uh, now it's so nice just to have a bow that, that you pick up, you put the rest where it goes, you put the mount put where it goes, you shoot the bow through paper, it makes a bullet hole, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is wonderful. <laughs> this, this, this string technology, I don't know if you were out there when we were still shooting fast flight. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, Dacron, and, and you would have to you'd have to be moving your side throughout a tournament as it got warmer and warmer. <laughs> it's like, uh, bows now people are so spoiled now. And it's great to see the technology because especially hunting, because now I can go through a whole hunting season with my new bows and never have to adjust the sight. I mean, back in the day, I shot my bow every day and on, on occasion, I mean, almost every other day you'd have to move your whole, you know, you'd have to do some sort of gang adjustment uh, <laughs> yeah. just because things were changing. You know, and you'd come home after the hunt and you'd shoot your bow through paper and it wouldn't be shooting a hole like it was when you left. No, yeah, it was, it was like having a bungee cord on your bow. I mean, that thing just changed every yeah. single time you got off the plane. Um, oh, exactly. And and I used to spend, I figured when I was competing at, at the top of my game, I figured I was... I was working on my bow at least as many hours a week as I was shooting my bow. And now I work on my bow very rarely, very rarely. Yep. Yeah. I don't, I hardly ever touch my bow. Um, so I want to ask you a question because I know how I feel on this. And for some reason I feel like, um, people aren't really grasping it when I say it, but you know, there's a, there's a pretty big movement right now of people, shooting their sights like a foot or more out in front of their bow on their hunting bow and they're just putting it out there because you know it looks cool and you know they don't really realize that back when we shot tournament archer tournament archery and we first started to extend the sight there were specific reasons for that but if you're going to extend the sight you also need to be really well aware of how your torque tuning is as well. So what do you personally shoot for your front sight extension? John, I, I torque tune it and I, I move my sight. Torque tuning is basically the, the, the geometry between your sight and your arrow rest, how far back your arrow rest is and how far forward your sight is. Every bow I shoot is set up, and eat this two or 20 years ago, every bow I shoot 
the site will be set differently, uh, specific, and the arrowrest will be differently specifically for that reason. One of the things with the hunting bow that I'm very careful of, though, is I don't to have my sight very far forward, and that's only for uh, for the reason that the closer the sight is to the bow itself, the less likely you are to to, to do something stupid with it, you know, uh, to bang it on something, or uh, the more it's protected, the less likely it is to get knocked off sight. So I try to keep it relatively close to the bow just to keep it. I like everything on my hunting bow tight and strong so that if I drop my bow, um, if I bang it on a rock or something, I, I, it, it, it's not going to change. And, and the, the, the closer everything is to the riser, the less likely that that is to happen because the further out your side is, the easier it is to, 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 to torque it one way or the other and, and, uh, and uh, knock it out of alignment. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, people ask me a lot what length I shoot on my stabilizer or why I choose a certain length stabilizer for my hunting bow. And I just pick a stabilizer that's long enough to where when I set my bow straight down on the ground, I protect my sight. You know, I like to have my sight fairly close to the riser. And if you have the right length stabilizer, you can set it down and your limb cup and your stabilizer hit the ground, but not the sight. Yeah, I only caught a bit of that, John, but you were talking about safe stabilizer length. And yeah, if I do use stabilizer, which most of the time if I'm hunting way up in the mountains and weights are critical, which is most of my mule deer hunting, I don't use a stabilizer. I prefer to use one because it obviously it's more accurate and it also helps quiet the bow down. But if I do use one, I like to use one that's longer than my side. Again, you're right. It, I think you were saying that it helps protect your side as well. Right. Uh, but but. But yes, I'm the same way. So do you feel like um, when it comes to torque tuning, do you feel like more often than not, the front sight length, how far it is forward, is is almost needs to be similar to where it is coming back? Well, he cut out, but he'll be back. There he is. Oh, John, <laughs> John I, I didn't catch much of that at all but I think you're headed in the direction of, of how far forward the site versus how far back the arrow rest. Right, right, yeah. Uh, no, the site can go much forward than the arrow rest can go back um, and still torque tune well. Um, but there is there is definitely, uh, it seems like the further back you go on the rest, the further forward you can go on your site depending on the confirmation of the boat. And I have, I'm not smart enough. I figured out the port tuning, she's 25 years ago and, and I uh, didn't think anyone else knew about it. Um, and, but I am not smart enough to look at a bow and figure out ahead of time where everything needs to be. I, I know it does matter how deep, you know, how much deflex there is in riser as opposed to reflex. Uh, but I can't, I haven't been able to, to attach a formula to it. All I know is I just do it by gosh and by golly. I just experiment back and forth until it, until it works. And interestingly enough, some bows won't work well at all, um, no matter what you do with the sight. And, the, um, and, and I think that has something to do with, with you know, perhaps uh, the shorter axolaxid bows definitely have more issues with that. And it seems like the, the further... Some bolts really pull the cables off to the side a long ways, and that tends to to uh, 
to make it more difficult to torque tune as well. Oh yeah. And I would imagine bows with the with the in my hands bows with a higher let off tend to be a little more difficult to torque tune. Yeah, yeah. There's some there's some bows on the market right now that are major companies and they feel really good at full draw, but just the way the cables are being pulled away from the string and how far out they are and then a super high let off with the high valley there's just a lot of torsional swing in that bow when it's at full draw and although they feel really nice they're not necessarily the most forgiving is what you could have yeah and that's why i've always you know i've not gone above 65 percent, and it really doesn't have anything to do with the old pope and young rules uh, I've just found that I don't hold as well with a with a low let off bow like a sixty five percent versus seventy five or eighty percent. I can hold better with those the let off with a, with a lot of let off. You just hold so well, but any little mistake that you make uh, in the beginning of the shot or or any mistake you make in your form is is uh, is always amplified by those high let off bows. I I hold worse but group better with a low let off bow yeah well what poundage are you shooting for your peak i shoot about 75 for hunting okay okay so you're still uh, holding you're yeah, still holding. 70 to 75 just depends i i bought them out the limbs i i asked for a 70 pound bow usually with hoya they'll, they'll bottom out at you know 71 or 72 on a 75 pound bow, or a 70 pound bow sometimes they'll go to 75 but i, I pretty much bottom the limbs out um just to see them, and I probably don't need to with the new Hoyt limb system. Um, the limb brackets are really stable, but that goes back to the old days when when none of the bows had good limb, you know, limb brackets, um, limb pockets. Right. Um, oh yeah. And uh, you know, back when we had to shim them and all that, I've always had more luck when they were fully fully uh, bottomed out. So that's just what I do now. Yep. Well. Hey, we're um, we're kind of getting to hit that hour mark. Um, this has been a fun talk. I could we could talk longer. I may bring my, I might bring my little portable recorder to um, the ATA show because you, myself, and Bill Winky always get to hang out at the Hoyt booth for uh, for our signing times. So maybe we can jump on a podcast at some point there where we've got a better connection too, and the three of us talk talk nonsense. That could be fun. If you heard any of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to sit down. I, you know, I always love, love to talk to Bill. Uh, um, yeah, we, we would we would have fun on that. Yeah, if you want, just let me know when, and then uh, I'll, I'll I'll cut out an hour to, to get that done. Yeah, that'll be good. All right, man. Well, thanks for everything, and um, stay safe out there. Make sure you're riding with a helmet. I I never rode with it. I never rode with the helmet until until a month ago. I, f- I fell on the highway for the first time, and it was um, I crashed pretty hard. I messed myself up. Yeah, you, you got to wear a helmet. You know, we don't let the kids uh, on the bike team. They're not even allowed to swing their leg over uh, the bar without a helmet. Uh, we unfortunately had a kid in our league, not in our in our on our team, but in our league, it was. Uh, riding home um uh after a, a practice and 
and was killed, and he, he wasn't wearing a helmet. Um, and if he had been, he probably wouldn't have been killed. So, yeah, helmets are a big deal. I mean, it's just, uh, you talk to any, well, you talk to any neuro, neurosurgeon, and, and, and they they see it so often. Uh, so, yeah, wear, wear your helmet. Wear your helmet. <laughs> so our kids, if, we, if any coach sees them, even if it's not practice, we're riding a bike without a helmet. Uh, they're immediately... Um, uh, kicked off the team for a period of time. So it, we make it a big deal. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah. wear your helmet. <laughs> All right, wear your helmet. Well, you're, uh, you're so hard headed, it probably doesn't matter, but <laughs> everyone else needs to wear their helmet. All right, so we, we what we got out of this was um, you still like small diameter, heavy arrows. Um, your top three mechanicals are going to be an Ulmer Edge, a Sniper, or a Rage Hypodermic. You like to torque tune, you keep your sight tight, you eat oatmeal, work in some chia seeds, <laughs> and ride your bike with a helmet. That was a pretty good sum right there, pretty good summary. Tips of the day. <laughs> All right, buddy, we'll travel safe right, to the John, ATA. Well, thanks. Thanks, thanks for having me. We'll All right. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com